If you would take out your Bibles with me, our scripture reading this morning is from Jonah 2, be reading verses 1 through 10. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Amen. I'd like to begin with some word association today. And so I, if I say the word Jonah, what's the first word that comes into your mind? Fish or whale, right? If you went to Sunday school as a child, you heard the story of Jonah being swallowed by the whale. You can see how a child would be fascinated by such a story. A story of a man being swallowed by a whale and and living inside that fish for three days and three nights. Lived there until he was uncomfortably vomited out of the whale onto a beach. And so that would be a very interesting story for a child to hear. But as we get older, when we read the story of Jonah as adults, many of us say, really? This could not have happened. This story must be a myth. It cannot be real. I certainly understand your skepticism. Jonah's story does seem fantastic to us. So let me tell you a few reasons why I think that Jonah actually was swallowed by a fish and lived inside the fish for three days. First of all, in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus said that he believed that Jonah was inside that fish for three days and three nights. As Christians, we are followers of Jesus. And so if Jesus believes something, we too believe what Jesus believes. And the second reason I believe in the story of Jonah is because I believe in a far greater miracle. I believe that Jesus was dead for three days. And then on the third day, on Easter Sunday, Jesus rose from the dead. What an amazing miracle. If Jesus could do that, then why couldn't he keep someone alive in a fish for three days and three nights? I understand that we live in a skeptical culture, but even skeptics have faith in something. As a Christian, I have faith that miracles are possible. Skeptics have faith that miracles are not possible. But can a skeptic prove that miracles are not possible? No, they can't do that. 
They take it on faith that miracles are not real. In Jonah chapter 2, we see Jonah praying to God to save his life within the belly of that fish. And God does save him. Jonah then afterward believed that miracles are real. But at the same time, Jonah struggled to believe something. He struggled to believe that God's grace and mercy for his enemies are also real. How could God possibly be merciful to his enemies, Jonah thought? That cannot be real. But God's grace for his enemies is real. And so I'd like for us to look at Jonah's prayer in Jonah chapter 2 this morning and see some characteristics of grace so that God's grace might become more real to us. What we see from the story of Jonah is that grace is something you don't deserve. What does Jonah do as soon as he gets swallowed by the fish? He does what you or I would do. He prays, right? In verse 1, he begins to pray. How scary would it be to be swallowed alive by a giant fish? Sounds like a horror story, doesn't it? And so Jonah asks God to save his life. And in verse 2, we see that God does eventually answer Jonah's prayer. But when Jonah prayed, he must have wondered, is God really going to answer my prayer? He wondered for a few different reasons. First, who does it say in Jonah 1 and verse 17, sent that fish to swallow Jonah? Who sent the fish? The Lord. It was the Lord who appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And then in Jonah chapter 2 and verse 3, we read how Jonah knew who had thrown him into the stormy sea. We read Jonah pray in verse 3, For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Now we had read in Jonah chapter 1 and verse or Jonah chapter 1 that it was the sailors who had tossed Jonah overboard from the ship. So the sailors did the work of throwing Jonah into the sea. But who did Jonah know beyond the shadow of a doubt was behind the sailors' action? It was God. So it was God who threw Jonah into the ocean. And it was God who then sent the fish to swallow Jonah. Jonah didn't know at that time that the fish was sent to save his life. He probably thought what you or I would have thought. It's over for me. This fish is here to kill me. Jonah then knew that he was being judged by God for his rebellion against God. Jonah had rebelled against God's command to go to Nineveh and speak a message of mercy to those wicked sinners. And Jonah knew that while he sloshed around in the belly of that giant fish, that he deserved the judgment of God. And so he must have wondered if a, a guilty sinner like him would have his prayer to save his life answered by God. Now, in, in our culture, most people do not think of themselves as guilty sinners. That's not the first thing that people think about themselves. 
We are taught from an early age in our society that we should have a good self-esteem. But while it is true that God does esteem us, he highly values us because of his love for us. That does not mean that we have no guilt in us. Yes, we are loved by God, but at the same time, we are guilty. We are also taught today that all moral standards are relative. There are no absolutes when it comes to right or wrong. And we are taught that morality in our culture is socially constructed by people and groups of people. And so no one has the right to make you feel guilty. Only you can determine what is right or wrong as you look deep inside yourself. But what does the Bible say about all this? The Bible severely clashes with this understanding of morality and self-esteem. The Bible says that God is the author of all our moral standards. And God is the judge of all those who violate his standards. We have all sinned, and so we are all guilty. We all deserve the judgment of God. Jonah finally grasped this truth while he was in the belly of the whale. He had been thinking that he did not need God's grace. Other people do, but not me. Jonah thought, I am a Jew. I'm one of God's chosen people. And on top of that, I'm a prophet. I am one of the best of the best. Jonah thought. Now the Ninevites, those wicked people who are responsible for state-sponsored terrorism that Jonah was supposed to go and talk to about God, those people really needed God's mercy. They needed God's grace. They deserved to die for their crimes. They were not good people like Jonah. But then Jonah hit rock bottom in his life. You can't get any lower than being swallowed by a giant fish. And if you can't get lower than that, I don't want to go to that place. <laughs> Jonah finally understood then that he did not deserve God's mercy and grace either. Actually, Jonah was just like the Ninevites that were his enemies. He deserved God's judgment too, not God's grace. And so Jonah prayed for something he didn't deserve. He prayed for God to save his life. Some of you this morning are just like Jonah. You too have hit rock bottom in your life. It is a really painful place to be when you hit rock bottom. Sometimes, however, rock bottom can be a good place for us. It can actually be a place of hope for us. Sometimes rock bottom is the only place in your life where God can teach you about his grace. At rock bottom, God can give you something that you don't deserve. At rock bottom, you learn how much you need God. You learn that God gives you what you don't deserve. 
In the year 2008, J.K. Rowling, the author of the Harry Potter series of books, gave the commencement speech at Harvard University. Here's part of what she said. She said that she had failed on an epic scale. An exceptionally short-lived marriage had imploded, and I was jobless, a single parent, and I was as poor as it is possible to be in modern Britain without being homeless. But she said, I began to direct all of my energy into finishing the only work that mattered to me. Had I really succeeded at anything else, I might never have found the determination to succeed in the one arena, writing, in which I believed I truly belonged. So what was J.K. Rowling saying? Her success was built on her failures. Sometimes it is only when you reach the very bottom in life that you are finally able to open yourself up to God and depend on God for what you need. And all of us are in desperate need of the grace of God. We don't deserve that grace. We deserve God's judgment. But God loves you so much that he gives undeserved grace to those like Jonah who have hit rock bottom. Grace is realizing that you don't deserve anything from God. The second thing we see in Jonah's prayer is that grace is realizing that you cannot repair your relationship with God. In verse 4, we read what Jonah thinks as he prays. He says there, Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. That's what he's praying as he's sinking into the ocean. So this is obviously a very quick prayer. He's about to drown. He thinks that he is now completely rejected by God. In verse 2, we see that Jonah thinks that he is on the verge of going to Sheol. Sheol was the, the place of the dead for those who were waiting on God's judgment. And when Jonah is going to be judged, he realizes, I'm probably going to be cut off from God forever for my sin. Have you ever felt like Jonah felt in that moment? Have you ever realized there is nothing that I can do to repair my relationship with God? That is a difficult place to be. And so Jonah begins to think about another place while he prays. It's a place that he mentions in both verse 4 and verse 7. It is the temple in Jerusalem. Apparently, there was something about the, the temple that gave Jonah hope as he was sinking into the water. It was the temple that gave him hope as he had despair over his sin and over his almost certain death while he was about to drown. Jonah's death in the water seemed almost inevitable, according to verse 5. The waters closed over the top of Jonah. He knew he deserved the judgment of death from God for his sin. He knew that he was going down to the land of death, whose bars closed upon him forever, according to verse 6. 
And so Jonah knew in his heart, I cannot pay this debt that I owe to God. I just can't do it. But Jonah held on to hope in spite of his desperate situation. What was it about the temple that gave Jonah hope at this time? What was it about the temple that would give a reason for God to pull Jonah up from the pit, as it says that God will eventually do in verse 6? Well, in the temple, there was this box that was covered with gold in the most holy place in the temple. I brought a picture of that box this morning. This is kind of what it looked like, a representation of it. And those of you who have watched the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark know what that box is called. But you don't even have to watch the movie to know what the box is called. You know what you can do? You can read the Bible. Imagine that. Okay, and so what is this box called? What is it? It is called the Ark of the Covenant. And on top of that ark, what you see there are two golden cherubim angels whose wings are touching, who are on top of the box. And they form what is called the, the mercy seat there at the top of the Ark of the Covenant. And what's so special about this mercy seat? Well, I'd like for us to read out loud from Exodus 25 and verse 22. Let's read those verses together. There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. God had promised to meet with his people at a certain place. And what was the name of that place? It was called the Mercy Seat, which is an interesting name. God says, I meet with you at the place of what? Mercy. God is a merciful God. Can you see why this mercy seat gave to Jonah great hope? God had promised to show mercy to his people at this place in the temple, even though his people had sinned and did not deserve God's mercy at all. There were no good deeds that the people could do that could bring them back into God's good graces. They could not repair their relationship with God. But God had still promised to show mercy to his people. And it was this promise of mercy that gave Jonah hope, even though he was drowning and deserved to die. Jonah could not repair his relationship with God. But in his mercy, God could and God would repair his relationship with Jonah. In the year 2006, the Amish people of West Nickel Mines, Pennsylvania, gave to the world a picture of the mercy of God. On the morning of October 2nd, 2006, Charles Roberts barricaded himself into the Amish school in this town. And after Charles Roberts had murdered five young girls and wounded six others, he took his own life. This was not only a horrible tragedy for the Amish, 
It was also a tragedy for Robert's wife, Marie, and for her two young children. This family would now have to try to make their way through life, living in a community that had been destroyed by her husband. As you might imagine, there were not too many people who showed up for the funeral of Charles Roberts. Not too many people want to go to the funeral of a mass murderer. So only about 75 people from the community came. But do you know who half of those people were who came to the funeral? Amish people. Despite the horrible crimes that this man had committed against their community, an Amish person, Amish people, came to mourn Charles Roberts as a father and as a husband. Bruce Porter, the fire department chaplain who attended the funeral, said that this would be the memory that he would carry with him about that funeral service. It's the love the heartfelt forgiveness that they have toward the family. I broke down and I cried, seeing it displayed. There was nothing that Marie Roberts could do to repair her family's relationship with the Amish community. Nothing. But the Amish community did all of the work of repairing the relationship with Marie on their own initiative. They gave grace and mercy that was completely undeserved and unexpected. And so does God. God gave undeserved mercy to Jonah, and he will give undeserved mercy and grace to you if you cry out to him for it final thing that we learn about grace in Jonah's prayer in Jonah 2 is that grace is realizing how costly salvation is. There's a wonderful word for grace in Jonah chapter 2 and verse 8. There Jonah prays, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Now the Hebrew word kesed that Jonah used that is translated with the words steadfast love could also be translated with the words goodness, kindness, faithfulness. In short, it refers to the grace of God. God will remain faithful to us even when we sin and are unfaithful to him. Christianity is the only religion in the world with a God of such incredible grace. Idols and other false gods certainly don't have such grace. Idols will demand that you do something first before they supposedly will do something for you. Not our God. When you sin, God does not say to you, go away, clean up your act. Do some good deeds. Then you can come back to me. But not until then. No, that is not our God. God accepts us into his presence before we do any good deeds for him. 
He accepts us completely because of his grace and his mercy. That grace costs God something. We see what it costs God by going back to the temple that Jonah had mentioned in verses 4 and 7. Once a year at the temple, the people would celebrate at a holiday called the Day of Atonement. Something would be done on that holy day that would atone for all of the sins of Israel. Something would be done which would make it possible to restore the broken relationship between a holy God and his sinful people. What was it that would be done? There would be the sacrifice of a bull. And I'd like for us to read out loud together from Leviticus chapter 16 and verse 14. What the high priest would do with the blood of that bull on the day of atonement. Let's read together. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat and on the east side and in front of the mercy seat he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Some of you are saying, that sounds really, really gross. What a bloody mess. The priest taking his finger, dipping it in the blood of the bull, and spattering it all over the mercy seat that we just looked at earlier. The high priest would take the blood and Put it on top of the Ark of the Covenant. The mercy seat then, it was the top of the Ark. And do you know what was inside the Ark of the Covenant? Do you know what was in there? It was the Ten Commandments, those stone tablets that God had written out the Ten Commandments on. They were lying inside the Ark of the Covenant. Now, how many people in the history of the world have ever been able to keep those Ten Commandments perfectly? How many people would that be? That would be zero. For those of you who love math, that would be the null set. Okay? Nothing is included there. Okay? We all then deserve God's judgment and condemnation. How then can we approach God? How is it possible for us Guilty sinners to come into the presence of God. How can we receive the mercy of God that we so desperately need? Only through the blood of the atoning sacrifice that was sprinkled on the mercy seat. The mercy seat which covered over the law of God, keeping its demands from harming us again. It is only when the death of another secures our forgiveness that we can have a restored relationship with God. Now, a bull was an expensive animal to sacrifice, but even an expensive bull sacrificed year after year after year on the Day of Atonement could not eternally secure our forgiveness. God would need to offer a far greater sacrifice, and he would need to shed infinitely more precious blood to secure our forgiveness forever. And by his grace, that is exactly what God has done 
He has shed the precious blood of his son, Jesus, by his grace, so that we might be forgiven and so that we might be saved forever from the judgment of God. Church, do you see what it costs God to forgive you? Do you see it? Do you see how great his grace is? Grace that is properly called amazing grace. It is amazing. Because do you know whose blood was shed so that you might be forgiven? The blood of the Son of God. What a gracious God we have. Who would pay the price of his Son's own blood so that we might be saved from God's judgment. I want you to notice how Jonah's prayer ends. It ends in chapter 2 and verse 9, before Jonah gets vomited on the dry land. There in Jonah 2 and verse 9, Jonah ends his prayer with these words. He ends them with a shout. Salvation belongs to the Lord. You can see why he prayed that way, right? His life was saved. And so Jonah shouts, salvation belongs to the Lord. Last week, I told you that the Bible is one story. Today, I want to tell you that in Jonah chapter 2 and verse 9, you have the theme verse of the entire Bible. This is it. You might say, really? In Jonah, that tiny little book? This is the theme of the whole Bible? Yes, it is. You know what it is? Salvation belongs to the Lord. That is what the Bible is all about. It's all about salvation by God's grace. It was God's grace that saved Jonah from the ocean, that picked him up in the fish, and then spit him out on the land. And it is God's grace alone that saves us. We have done nothing to contribute to our salvation. God has done it all. God has provided the costly sacrifice of his own son to pay for our sins. And God has even given to us the faith that we need to believe in Christ so that we might be saved. Salvation is completely, 100% God's doing. God saves us. We do not and cannot save ourselves. That is the gospel. And it is all of grace. It might sound too good to be true, but believe it. The miracle of God's grace is real. And I'm here to tell you it's an even greater miracle than Jonah staying alive in a fish for three days. God's grace is real. Let's rejoice and be glad in it. Let's pray together. God, how grateful we are for the reality of your great grace. All of us in this room desperately need it. 
There are times when we are tempted to be proud, to say to others, well, they need God's grace, but I sure don't. What a lie. All of us stand in need today of your mercy and your grace. Thank you so much for giving us that grace that we so desperately need. Thank you that you are the God who saves. In your great name we pray. Amen.